Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey friends, welcome to another edition of the Tennis and Bagels podcast. This is your host, Vanch, and it's my honor to be joined once again by tennis writer and Hall of Famer, Steve Flink. Steve, we do this after every major, and I'm always really excited for it, and this one is no different. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a really compelling tournament, Vanch, and I, I always enjoy speaking about it with you because we do, you know it, it's in-depth, and we go over all the, the crucial points, and you know the game well, so... Looking forward to this discussion. Likewise, Steve. Um, I think we can get right away started with the men's final that took place on Sunday. Um, obviously, number one versus number two. Um, you know, his, historically, it's a big moment, obviously, in, in men's tennis with Alcaraz winning this and toppling Djokovic in the in the final. But I guess we could sort of break it down set by set. Maybe we could start with the first set. Um, and I thought it was, I, I thought right away, the first key, the key point in the match was Djokovic saving the first break point at 30-40 with a 127-mile-per-hour serve out wide. Yeah. I think that was, that was yeah. the first huge moment. And then, of course, him, you know, Alcaraz coming out a little bit a little bit nervous, obviously, but with the occasion, overhitting quite a bit on his forehand. But Djokovic was super solid and, you know, was, wasn't was making many, any errors, really, and couldn't have played the first five games any better, including... Well, he's su- super solid, but also the returns were coming back so deep. Carlos was... It was uh... I mean, I just was, it, it was a really stellar display on his part. And you're right, it, it made a difference, just as it did at the beginning of the center match in the semis that Djokovic fighting, you know, when, when you're down a break point or a couple of break points in the first game, it's a big deal to hold because it changes the whole. And, he, he, and by getting the break on Carlos immediately for two love, and the next thing you know, he's at five love, you see what a difference it made. But yeah, it was an, it was an excellent first set from Djokovic. You, you're right that, Carlos pressed a bit, went for too much off his forehand, trying to bang spectacular returns off that side and missing. And it, maybe he was tense, who knows? But he he definitely was reacting to the occasion. And But I still thought it was a bit more, the scales are tipped a bit more on Djokovic playing a, almost a letter-perfect set, the way he would have scripted it. And so I think it was more that than, than Carlos. But boy, I mean, at, at that stage... I mean, I didn't go along. I don't go along with the notion of it. I was surprised actually when Jim Courier said after them, Courier did such a great job on the commentary, but he made a comment afterwards that it looked like it was going to be a route after the first set. I didn't feel that. I I felt what Djokovic got just the start he wanted. And I knew it was inevitable that someone as competitive as Carlos and poised as he is, that he'd make a push in the second set. And the second set would become crucial. I, I didn't. I didn't see it as a route. Now, uh, that's why I was surprised that Jim said that because I never felt that way to me. It just felt like Djokovic gave himself a nice cushion, 
got through the first set without too much energy and exertion, played it on his terms and put himself in a position to, to, to win this final and get his eighth title. So that's, that's how I looked at it. But let's talk about the second set now. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I agree with you on your, on your previous, previous point, because as soon as Alcaraz held for one five, I was thinking, I mean, there's no way the second set won't be at least competitive right. and he has every shot right. to, to win it. And uh, I just thought someone as complete as Al Alcaraz and just having been through, gone through what he did at the French, that he was going to learn from that and just find his way in his match. But moving to the second set, obviously Alcaraz is up a break and he's, he has a game point for three love and it's two love. Yeah. Uh, it, it's two love 40, 30. And then he messes yeah. a big forehand. Um, and then he goes yeah, for one of those point. drop shot lob combos. The big point, sorry to interrupt. Big point, big game. No doubt about it. If he holds for three love, it's it's harder. Although I'm not convinced that Novak might not have broken back later in the yeah. set anyway. But it would have made Carlos feel a lot better. He would have kept the momentum going and would have put him in a better position to win that set. And and but Djokovic by getting it back immediately was comfortable again and was feeling like you know this set could belong to him. And he he had he had quite a positive reaction to the break back there. You saw it and kind of screamed out. He was. It was almost a pleasant surprise to him that he could get it back immediately like that. So, uh, but then the rest of the set's on serve. That's the interesting part to me that they both did a good job of protecting their serves from that point on. And you could sense that there was an inevitability about a tiebreak, that we were going to get a tiebreak to settle that set. And of yeah, course- no And just one more thing, in the 10th game, Djokovic came up with a spectacular forehand pass uh, on game point, and then he hit that awesome- backhand flick volley yeah. uh, I, I mean yeah it was like a dink uh and it yeah. was a really really big point to, to hold for five all i thought it was it was but i didn't feel like he was going to get broken like he got pushed a little bit i felt like he was going to hold it yeah anyway we so we get to the tie break and obviously you know novak has got 15 in a row at the majors three in australia six in paris six here yeah. and they weren't as letter perfect as the tie breaks in, in Roland Garros. He made some mistakes, but it still was very impressive. And it was, it, it was, it, it was the key to almost every round that he played, including two against Herkosh, that the, the tie breaks were really pivotal in, in those matches for him. And ironically, he had said, leading into the final bunch, that he felt he was very aware of this tiebreak record and he thought his opponents were too. And undoubtedly, Carlos was. I think he was right, which was maybe one of the reasons why Novak coaxed a backhand down the line error from Carlos on the first point of that breaker and then had two unreturnable first serves in a row, which, by the way, was not easy on this particular day. Carlos was getting a, started to get a lot of returns back in play. So for Novak to get two you could argue they were both service winners, but they certainly were unreturnables and have that nice three zip cushion. I mean, it, you had to believe at that stage, you know, that two set to love lead was, was looming. And, and uh, it was impossible to imagine from three love for me that he would lose that target. Then, then of course, I'm sure you noticed obviously that drop shot. Now I'm not, I'm not quite sure why he tried it because first of all, it wasn't well disguised. That was, the, that was the, that was, uh, you know, he'd had, he, he, that was a chance to start pulling away. And, you know, Carlos had already played two good points by then on his own serve to make it 3-2. So there's Novak with a chance to go to 4-2, and he nets the down-the-line drop. I didn't think it was, it was, 
it was uncharacteristic to me, Vonch, that he would try that shot at that moment when it wasn't really in the cards. And Carlos is so quick. And, and looking at it at the time and then seeing the replay since Carlos was on to it, I think he would have gotten to it and done something yeah. good with it. It just was not, a, not the right play. Nonetheless, I like the way Novak just buckled down, won the next point. They were staying on serve. And, you know, Carlos is 4-3 and Novak, you know, it, it, it's swinging back and forth. They're each winning their service points. And suddenly then Djokovic in a clutch display from 4-5 makes a nice low backhand pass to force Carlos into the back and drop by the air and then passes him nicely. Use one pass to set up the next one and pass him down the line off the back end. And suddenly it's six, five. And yeah. we all know that that, that was quite clutch because, because Carlos also hit a very nice forehand drop shot winner to go up five, four. So yes, he did. Yes, he did. And, uh, but I, but then there was extra pressure on Novak and he won those two points and there he is. And I could, I'm sitting there in the center court and you're listening to the crowd and they're excited. They're sensing this might be, the, the breaker might be about to end. Yeah. And I thought Novak did a really terrific job to win, uh, how should I put this? To make the first server turn off the back end, nice and deep. Yeah. Then Carlos answered with a pretty deep back end of his own, but it was not hit hard. Mm -hmm. That's why I was so surprised that Novak then netted the two-hander cross-court into the net tape. You could claim a little unlucky because it was definitely in the net tape, but normally he's going to give himself more margin than, than that. And he's, he's so aware of the stakes, the consequences of the biggest points and not making a mistake and waiting for his openings. And I've never seen a look on his face quite like that one after losing that point. He stood there for a long moment, looking down, absolutely amazed that he had done that. Yeah. So that was, that was very surprising. And then, and then, and then after that, Bonch, uh, to change ends and, ha and have this happen again, but except worse in a way, the back end down the line into the net on the, on the six all point, because he could have gotten himself back in the driver's seat, perhaps if he, served, if, if he wins that point on car, you know, he goes up seven, six, maybe now he can close it. You know, he'd be serving. He'd be serving at seven six instead of six seven, and maybe he ends it. But that was a terrible error for him. And then obviously, then there was the attempted serve and volley by Novak. And I, I frankly, I didn't think it was a terrible idea. It was a one eighteen wide. I would have thought it might have might have caught Carlos a bit off guard, and that Novak would give himself a forehand volley, uh, a forehand yeah. first volley, and take control. But he had no play. It was a down. It was a outright winner from Carlos down the line. With good margin, very good margin, well over over the net, but well inside the baseline. Very well done from Carlos. But the point is, the preceding two points had been handed to him, and that was so Unjokovic-like, especially in a breaker. So I honestly think, Vanch, I'd I'd curious to get your thoughts. I just feel like that that there was a clear hangover. Normally, I feel like Djokovic is very good at losing a tough set and then starting anew the beginning of the of the next set and reasserting himself and just sort of putting that the disappointment behind like I had the feeling that was about to happen in in Roland Garros as an example when he played Carlos there he'd lost a he won a 6-3 first set that hard fought second set well played by both Novak is down 5-3 back to 5 all and has a break point 
and doesn't convert. Miss, miss, uh, a surprising miss there too. And then Carlos breaks in the next game and it's one set all. And then we know what happened after that with the full body cramping. But my point is, I didn't feel like Novak going into that third was, was uh, in disarray or in distress. I felt like he would, he, we'll never know, but it looked to me like he was just going to buckle down and get on with his business. But this time I thought he got, even before the marathon 27 minute 13 deuce game, when Novak served at 1 3 in that third set, he already, I thought, was that something was definitely off key. And he even said himself, Bonch, afterwards, and you don't hear him talk this way very often, I wasn't myself in that third set. I wasn't myself. I don't hear him say things like that very often. I think that's an admission that he was still really disconcerted and, and dismayed that he had let the tiebreak get away. And he knew the importance of letting the tiebreak get away because if he goes to two sets of love, it, now he hasn't lost since the Meltzer match at the 2010 yeah. Open from two sets up. It's almost impossible to do it against him. Sitsipas at the 2020 French made a bid from two sets down and got it into a fifth and then Novak ran away with the fifth. That tends, he, he, he's almost unbeatable from that position. I think he knew it and I think he was distressed and yeah, he made that, there was sort of an effort, a, pri a prideful effort in that fifth game of the third set, the 27 minute game to try to keep it to one break and keep his morale up. But then once he lost that game, those last couple of games, he only won a few points from from four one down. He lost his serve kind of meekly in the last game. It wasn't surprising me because he just wasn't there. And then, of course, he took the bathroom break, tried to get it, got, and I thought did a nice job coming back because he had immediately loved thirty on on Carlos's serve, couldn't break him, and then held from fifteen forty. And then from that juncture, finally getting the break for three two and getting an insurance break at the end of the set. I felt like he was playing some of his best tennis again, and he was finding it a way to finish off points more effectively. And it was being played more on his terms. Don't you think in that four set, once he came back and sort of found his range again, and then in turn had the feeling that Carlos was physically weary and mentally weary, that he was, there was something, there was some drop off there. I can't fully explain it. I don't know if he was really asked too much about it. I didn't hear him ask. But during that stage, he definitely seemed to be declining. And Novak was really on the ascendancy. Uh, so yeah. I thought he, he did a very good job. And then I would have thought, Bonch, that breaking again in the last game when Carlos threw in the two double faults, yeah. that that was going to really help Novak because he'd served first in the fifth. And it could well have helped him because he held from break point down, clutch hold, and then had that break point for two love. And the point for two love was the second most important point. I'd argue it was the second most important because the, the tiebreak point is, is going to be for two sets to love and he's going to put it out of reach. But in any case, it was the other standout moment and the other surprising one in that he took, it was, it was a beautifully played point by Djokovic leading up to the last shot because he opened up the court, hit a cross court backhand, set himself up for a perfect forehand approach. And then Carlos, all he really could do was to try that lob down the line. And he did keep it pretty near the forehand sideline. And, and I know, I don't know how you felt. I didn't feel, I understood why Novak didn't take it as an overhead. It was I a little tricky. It's, it's windy. It's a little tricky. The overhead is always, has always haunted him in some ways. And he'd rather be hitting an overhead on an inconsequential point and not that one. 
So I understood it. What surprised me was that he just didn't execute the swing volley better. And I guess part of it is, is, was explained by him afterwards that he could see Carlos moving to the open court. He could, so that's why he wanted to go down the line behind him. But still, it didn't have to be that great. It just had to be solid down the line. And with Carlos moving in the other direction, it was almost surely going to have him beat. Because I'll tell you what, Bunch, nobody talks about it, but at the 2020, uh, 2021 French Open final against Tsitsipas, when Djokovic was finishing it off, match point, he came in. It was a similar kind of point, shorter kind of lob from Tsitsipas, and Novak decided to take that as a drive volley too, but he put it away. Because I yeah. think his drive volley is normally pretty reliable. So that's that surprised me. I, I was more surprised that he had missed the drive volley than that than I was that he didn't take it as an overhead. And I know Jim Courier said, and most people felt that way. Most of them felt you had to hit an overhead on that point, even if you try to hit, get some slice on it. Well, it's, it's easy to question him on that, but I think he knew what he was doing. I just think he should have made the shot. And had he made the shot and gone to two love, I think that would have finally done it for him. I think it would have been such an enormous boost to be serving at two love with a chance to get to three love and all the momentum going his way. He broke it twice in the fourth set. That, that was, that was the, the second most surprising point. That after the, that point in the tiebreak. What were your thoughts on the break point for two love? So, so when I saw him uh, moving backwards and, and I noticed how windy it was and I saw how high that lob was from Carlos and yeah. the, you know good defending by him, I thought, oh, this is going to be tricky. I, at first, I thought, just leave it because it's, gonna, it's probably going to go out. But then I watched the replay back and I'm like, no, 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 no. This would have, this would have probably hit the sideline. So oh, my, thought, not, my thought there was either, been... either take it Gosh, as a slice overhead would... in the open court or or hit the swing volley cross court and don't worry about trying to wrong foot Alcaraz because I think, you know, he got himself in a bit of trouble here in this fifth set trying to wrong foot him. As you know, in the next game on the uh, on, on the approach shot that he hit, you know, he, he hit it way too central because he was trying to, you know, yeah. catch Alcaraz off guard and trying, trying well, to Well, but also, him. also he hit it... It was a low ball. He was digging out a low yeah. ball. I understand off that. The slice. The off the slice, but the, it was far too much topspin from Novak on the forehand approach. You could see it as soon as it came off his racket. Unlike the approach shot that he made off the forehand, that that should have set up the drive volley winner. That was a perfect approach. But anyway, yeah, you're right. Maybe I, I felt the same way about the cross court idea. Hmm. You really you're giving yourself much more margin, and you take a good good swing at it, accelerated swing, get a decent angle cross court. You you're almost surely not going to miss it, and most likely Carlos can't even run it down, because that's what he did against Sitsipas off a shorter lob on that match point in the 2021 French. He went cross court, and Stefano said no chance. Now I know he's not nobody's as quick as Carlos, but I believe that that would have been the recipe. But it was just that kind of a day. You know, there were the, those moments, that and in the tiebreak, where Djokovic did things that one does not expect from him. And Carlos is, is going to make you pay for that more substantially than anybody else. And it was amazing to me, the turnaround after that, how well Carlos served and how well he played once he'd held on to make it one all. Now, that I thought that Djokovic... You know, he's at 30 all in the next game when that return came down the middle and it was not very deep. But but Novak had trouble getting up to that ball. He didn't gauge it quite right. And yeah. he missed it pretty routine. 
looking for him. That was a big miss to go down break point. Then we already talked about the break point itself. But I thought the 30 all was not a point he should have lost, not an error he should have made. And he was a little dis a little unhappy about that one as well. It was just that kind of a day. He played well, for sure. But uh, but after that first set, was he ever at his zenith? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think because of the the fluctuating fortunes and losing the one-set lead and finding himself having to sort of desperately fight back from two sets to one down. He was nearly good enough to do it, but not quite. So the, where I give Carlos the most credit, Vance, is that is is the remainder of that fifth set after he got out of the breakpoint difficulty in the second game because he was just so good on serve the rest of the way at protecting that one break from 2-1. Those last, you know, the... the the last four holds were very impressive to me, and particularly the five-four game, which I thought was very uh, gracious of Djokovic in the presentation ceremony to give Carlos so much credit for how he served it out. But it was very impressive. Djokovic made a lot of returns. He got it to 30 all, and uh, and Carlos just would not stop coming at him, would not stop putting first serves in in that last game. So I. I thought that was the shining moment for Alcaraz in that he sort of took it into his own hands once he had the break in the fifth and said, I'm not, uh, you're not going to stop me now. Or if you are, you're going to have to come up with something absolutely extraordinary. So I, I was impressed with that. It was almost like he, he knew. He knew he had escaped from a very precarious corner there in, on the break point and, uh, and not going down to love. And then from there, he seemed to get it. I just, it was almost like his energy level just soared all that, all that sort of difficulty, whatever it was physically, mentally, emotionally, that was going on in the fourth set was now gone. And Djokovic in turn was definitely jarred by not, not exploiting that opportunity. And he's continued to play well. He did obviously didn't lose his serve again and he fought hard right to the last point. But I think that one was, on top of the, of the set point and the tiebreak in the second set, it was a lot to deal with, even for someone as mentally tough as Novak Djokovic, because it was like he'd been given a second chance, given himself a second chance and unable to, uh, to exploit it. Yeah, uh, all that is great analysis. I will also add about the fifth set. I felt like another key game was at 3-2, uh, because I, I feel like Djokovic had some chances to get back and force the break back. Uh, yeah. and something that really impressed me was at love 15 Alcaraz hits this 121 mile per hour second serve into the body yeah and I thought yeah, that was that a big was one to come, come up with that at that moment and then I also yeah. thought uh, at 15 30 uh, Djokovic missed the second serve in fairness it was a 100 mile per hour second serve from Alcaraz and I know Wimbledon calls it a forced error but I actually think that's quite generous because that's a return that I, you would expect Novak to make oh absolutely no he should have made it he should have made it. That that's true. That game that there were that was a small opening. Obviously, yep. he didn't get it to break point. But if he make he wins that point, he's going to be a double break point. That was an important game, and I agree. It's not. A and return. also the next point at thirty all as well, because he hit this awesome return. It was a backhand inside out return, and he had Carlos defending on the forehand, and he just had this sitter type forehand in the in the middle of the court, and he just sprayed it wide. Yeah. So yeah. No, that, that was a big game. That was a big game. I mean, Carlos was not giving anything away, but Novak could have taken it into his, could have potentially had the break back there. It's true. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, that was, a neat, that was a better opportunity than even the 5-4 game, which went to 30-all. Uh, 
Yeah, that was a frustrating game for him. It was, again, that was sort of it was sort of that kind of day where just a few misses here and there that you wouldn't expect from him pressing a bit. But you know, it it, it was severely unnerving to him that he didn't put himself up two sets, and then that made the entire rest of the match. It, it, it threw him off off key, I would say, and he played his way back into form. But yeah, that was. But it's true though that potentially could have been a three all in the fifth. I agree with that. Yeah, for sure. And then I was impressed with Alcaraz's the like you his serving to to be in this kind of a, a final. He played the best set serving set of the US Open in that final set against Rude. And now he, he plays did. the best serving set here. And he hit on what impressed me is he hit three aces and they all came on game points. Because yeah, he, he hit did. it at three two and then he hit it at I think earlier on in the in the set and then yeah. he went to hold for five three and he had a second serve ace as well to hold for Five three. Yeah. So I thought that was no. That, that was, was an impre- that was a too. very impressive game. Now he was he was supremely confident by then. It was almost like he made up his mind that this title was his. It was it was he he was surprisingly confident because I keep looking back on the comments he made and how he played against Holger, playing Hogaruna. Now that was a Wimbledon quarterfinal, and he came out there nervous. And how he played in the third set against Medvedev, it was the only time he lost his serve we did it twice from a breakup and it didn't end up mattering but he, he didn't close it as cleanly as he might have liked to and he and I, I think he'd admit that that was also that was also in my mind nerves about being in the final and wanting to get to the final etc so to suddenly be up a break in the fifth set of his first Wimbledon final and not falter in any way uh, and play one good service game after another when he could have been down a break w- was very impressive that's where he played that that more than any other stage of the match to me that was where he played like a true champion yeah i was also just in general just impressed with how patient he got after the first set and how he was using his slice a lot more trying to break djokovic's contact point on the backhand to set himself up those aggressive forehands and just he he really trusted himself a lot more i feel like in the longer exchanges and even on the forehand he started to put a lot more topspin play with a lot more margin in the wind and allowed Djokovic a lot of margin. to, uh, you know, error on the forehand several times. And he's Djokovic, I don't think, is very comfortable playing in the wind, especially with the wind behind his back. Yeah, uh, no, he, you know, he wasn't. He, he, he wasn't. You're right. Back. You're right. Spot on with all of that. And it did surprise me, too, given the way Carlos had started and going for returns that he suddenly made up his mind. He'd use the slice back in very effectively. Return with some of those. He he the forehand. He just steered it down. The he the, most of his returns were down the middle and deep enough to make Novak have to think about how he was going to construct the point from there. And mm-hmm. a lot. And the other thing about Ivanch was not just the slice, but the forehand returns. Not much on them deliberately, and therefore yeah. Novak was going to have to generate his own pace. And on on a day when he was feeling a bit tight and uncomfortable in that wind and not liking it at his back, that's. Those are the worst circumstances to have to have. And that was very intelligent of Carlos to make that fundamental change in his returning strategy. And it, and it, and it was, was very effective. Obviously, only the one break in the fifth. I mean, Novak did a pretty good job of holding the last two sets. It was just that one break. Yeah. But Carlos was making him work hard, and, and it was a little awkward. Suppose you think of some of those first set service games when Novak could get some cheap points and I felt like he could win more points outright off the server on the first shot. And that was not the case later on. And it was a, it was a major sweeping adjustment. I don't know whether Carlos had discussed that 
with Ferrero before the match that, that, that he should think about doing that. I, I feel like in a lot of these cases, he's figuring it out for himself. Yeah. He, he, he's, he's a good thinker on a tennis court. And I feel like that, that one, he just, as the match unfolded, he realized what he needed to do there. And he realized he had to try to get, and it was impressive because actually there were, Novak hit a lot of very good first serves that, you know, in the 124 to 127 range that I, that I didn't think were going to come back and they did. Yeah. And that's frustrating too. If you're in Djokovic's shoes, you'd like to have a few more free points than he was getting. And uh, Carlos just wouldn't give it to him. So that, that, that was, that was a, a, uh, a very impressive turnaround in, in Carlos's strategic plan. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of people are talking about that three-one game in the third set, and uh, you know the twenty-seven minutes, and yeah, you know whatever it was, like thirteen deuces. Yeah, I, I was, uh, I was right. right. Yeah, 32, 32 points. I mean, Alcaraz made twenty-nine of those thirty-two returns, and you know, I would even argue that maybe Djokovic shouldn't have been in that position because he was up forty-fifteen in that game. He had a sublime backhand volley to go up forty-fifteen, um, and then yeah. once he once he kind of got himself involved in that deuce. Uh, deuce exchange he was never really able to like pull away from it because well partially because he, he missed a lot of those game points too there you know some errant yeah. forehands he 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 should have closed it a lot sooner but he battled hard and yeah. I, I think at that because stage, I had a feeling I had a feeling that if he had held there I think Alcaraz would have would have felt the pressure in the next service game of not converting his chances because see I'm not time, so sure I'm not so sure about you. I'm glad we have a mild disagreement here because we see most of these things the same. But on that one, I would say, no, I don't think so because I, he still would have been up a break. It wouldn't have been earth shattering to him to change over and not have the second break because he's still serving from a breakup. And, and, and I think he still would have felt, I mean, let's just say that it had gone the other way, 13 deuces, but Novak holds. He still would have felt, well, I really worked him hard in that last game. He was lucky to hold. I, I'm, I'm on him. So... We'll never know. I just mm. felt like from the very first game of that set, Novak started making some very uncharacteristic errors. He was sort of shrugging and putting his hands up, like, how do I how do I gauge this wind and hitting backhands in the bottom of the net? Yeah. I think he was he, really annoyed also on the break point because he I, I know he went for a really good serve. It was like 125 down the tee and it was called a net. And then yeah, you know, yeah. then he then he threw in his slowest second serve of the match. It was 83 miles per hour. By yeah. far the slowest one that he hit, and he just got really, really tense in that moment. And you know, then he missed a he missed a well, backhand in the net. And that had a lot to do is with the wind. It really the wind, did. Yeah. Uh, the wind affected his toss. I'd say more than any one aspect for either player, the wind affected Djokovic's toss, and he would take longer than he. I didn't feel like the extra time he took ended up doing him any good. He had to try to use it to try to gauge the wind and make sure he got the toss right, but. He would take an extra long time and still miss the first serve after the extra time. He couldn't get in in, in a rhythm. And, yeah. you know, to win 62% of your first serve points is very revealing. That's an extremely low number for him. Two aces, you know? the whole match. And and yeah. and one yeah. of them came in the first set. And one of them came in the first game of the third where he yeah. got broken. Well, yeah, so, and it's shocking because, you know, you think of how he closed out those sets against Sinner and he's serving two or three, three aces in a game and, here he has two in the match. So yeah. you got to wonder. Yeah, I mean, it, it, again, it was the conditions. It was surprising. In fairness, there were a fair number of, you know, of unreturnables. And so, yes. okay, that's just as good as an ace in its own way. But 
he he no he's such a good spot server he's so precise so it's the combination of him not able not unable to be as precise as usual and carlos i guess reading it pretty well and and doing a great job of just getting returns back into play so a combination of the two yeah and do you think alcaraz facing so many big servers in this grass court season the berrettini the jari the even the match in queens against brindernesh uh, which is which is where um, this all started you know his his ability to read so many of these serves change his return strategy in between in in between matches i mean he's breaking at a higher rate than anyone on the tour uh, this yeah, season yeah i uh, i agree one second watch put in the light on you know what it's a good point i would say this though when carlos lost to, to uh, beat novak on the uh, in madrid last year yeah. in that third set tiebreaker i read some quotes from him later not that day but it was some interviews that were done with him shortly after that and he he said the thing that impressed him most about jokovic was how hard it was to read that serve he never yeah. knew where it was going so i don't know whether they he and his team looked at some film and tried to figure it out based on jokovic matches that they were watching against others what patterns i don't know i have to say there were stages in the center match where i was equally surprised that novak within that 125 range and seemingly pretty close to the lines that some of those serves were coming back i i i i was shocked a little shocked by that as well because i just feel like when he's serving that precisely that accurately near the lines and the and decent speeds in the 123 to 127 range that I, I don't expect them to be able to return it, but Carlos did a, a great job of that. Yeah, for sure, no doubt. And then, you know, I, I, I like you also totally thought that uh, Alcaraz losing his serve at three five in the fourth set was going to be trouble because you don't want to be serving second in that fifth set. And and at that yeah. point, when Djokovic had that overhead smash, he had all the momentum. He had won. I mean, uh, the swing volley. He had already won six of the last seven games leading up into that yeah. point. So at that point, the match was reminding me a lot of the 2020 Australian Open final against Team, where, you know, Team also had those two break points in the beginning of the fourth set. And yes. Djokovic comes in and he saves those with serve and volleys on second yeah. serve. No, and, that was great. Then... That was very gutsy. And you're right. I mean, he was in real danger there. And that completely turned the match. He was down two sets to one and has those clutch holes and then ends up playing a terrific fifth set in the end to win it. But those... Those games you mentioned in the fourth were critical. Yeah, it is reminiscent in some ways, and that 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 was a that was a dangerous match. His team at, at pretty close to his best. Yeah, for sure. But you know, he made Carlos serve it out, and 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 he's he got five of the six returns back in play in the last game. Yeah, um, yeah. And Alcaraz hitting that huge serve at thirty all to get to the championship point, and then not looking back. It really impressed me that he didn't feel any any of those nerves at all in that last game. To, yeah, and even, you know what, he missed the drop shot on the first point, but yeah. that wasn't nerves. He just missed the drop shot, and yeah. that can happen. And he comes right back with a forehand drop shot winner on the next point. Yeah. And then the point after that, Djokovic hit a pretty decent backhand cross-court pass, and Carlos was lunging and made the, the winning volley there. So, yeah. listen, he was he was really at his zenith at that stage. And you're right, Novak made him serve it out. But it, to get back to your original point and the one that I made earlier, Obviously, you know, that's where that second game becomes so big because Novak, Novak can serve his way from two love to three love and, and the match might be close to over. And instead, 
it bugged him enough that you know maybe it contributed to the loss of that service game at one all but so suddenly that's why he smashed his racket i think he goes to the changeover down two one thinking he should be possibly up three love yeah i honestly think that's what was weighing on his mind he was so irked that not only did he fail to secure the break but that then he immediately lost his own serve it was a double whammy no doubt about it but i also think Akras deserves some credit for the next two points after the swing ball he missed because he still could have been broken. And, yeah. you know, he lost his first serves on both those occasions. But then he comes up with these huge forehands and then followed by another drop shot yeah. winner. And then, you know, on the yeah. next point, he also has a second serve. And then he goes a huge down the line forehand for a winner. And he, he, the way he was just in the zone in that moment to hit 18 winners in that fifth set. Yeah. You know, and yeah, no, it would like that. You know, he that's the thing. You you give him an inch, he takes a mile. That's the yeah. thing. That's why that Novak had to win that point when he was in command and did not. And Carlos then took it up two, three notches. You're right. Played the rest of that game well. But that didn't have much to do to me with the next game. The next game was really it, it was imperative for Novak at that stage to put it behind him and keep holding and get to two, one, three, two, four, three, you know, increase yeah. the scoreboard pressure with each and every hole, but he was unable to do it. And uh, look, I don't know, in a strange way, I, I've been analyzing this match in my mind for, for the last three, two, three days. Same. And I think, Ranch, that maybe it was the, there was some destiny there. There's something the way that Carlos found a way to win this match. Because uh, we were talking about it earlier, and Novak has that nine... 58 winning percentage after winning the first set in his career, which is the best of any player in the open era. He, if you look at his grand slam finals, you know, he lost twice to Stan in, in the 15 French and the 16 U S after winning the first set. He lost once to Rafa in a French final in 14 after winning the first set, but that those are rare occurrences as well. Uh, so yeah. the combination of all that, it just, it's, it, you say to yourself, okay, that and the chance in the fifth and, in a strange way, was this was this meant to be? Because you know, Carlos, uh, to beat Novak on it's one thing to beat him, but to beat him from the set down, to beat him when it looked like he was going to break at the start of the fifth, showed a lot. He showed a lot of character to not get discouraged and to, to compete as honorably as he did. Yeah, no doubt about it. And in the trophy ceremony, he said, "You know, this is even Stephen," and he referenced the 2019 Wimbledon final, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think he'll move past this because, you know, he still came within one match of winning four majors in a row. He still almost, you know, won the first three majors at 36 years of age, just, you know, for the well, second you, year running in three years. Yeah, you put your finger on something important, Vaj. The, all, that, there was a lot weighing on his mind beyond beating Carlos. It was, it was the eighth Wimbledon title if Novak can get it to tie Federer. It was the third major in a row to therefore go to New York for the second time in three years, having won the first three legs of the Grand Slam. And perhaps this time, learn from the experience of 2021 and, and win the Grand Slam. So there was all of that. And, you know, the number one ranking, there was, there was so much yeah. weighing on his mind historically. Carlos didn't have any of those issues. For Carlos, it was like this. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. He knows that at 20, he's going to be in many more Wimbledon finals. He wanted to, to, to strike right then and there, and he did. But he didn't have the same kind of pressure. And he also knew that... Almost everybody was picking Novak to win the match. And yet, so that all worked in his favor. And he very wisely portrayed it that way himself after his, excuse me, after his semifinal by talking about, well, we all know how, how great Novak is, but I'm going to fight. But obviously, he took it to another level in his mind than just deciding he was going to fight. He made up his mind he was going to win. And, and, yeah. uh, so it's it's extraordinary circumstance when you consider Novak's record after winning the first set. When you when you're talking about 41 losses, or you know, you did a little research and you could argue that it was 39 matches. Uh, but regardless, that is that's that's somebody that's after that many years. I mean, you're at it's just so few defeats from ahead. Yeah, and he, he never lost at Wimbledon. Also, from from a setup or at least a completed match. Right, right. A completed one. Exactly. No, it's true. And, and you, you add up all that. And, you know, I don't think he was cocky after the first set, but he always likes his chances. And I still remember him doing a Zoom call. It was shown during the early stages of COVID when nobody was going anywhere. And the players were doing some things together and getting on and the videos were being sent out. And I saw the one that he did with Stan Babrinka. And he oh, yeah, said... He said to Stan that what really bothered him about those two losses to Stan was that he'd won the first set each time. So in his mind, even in best of five, he should not lose from a setup. So all those things are weighing in his mind, no doubt about it. And then to have the chance, he would have been better off, let's face it, he would have been better off if, go back to that third game when Carlos has, uh, has uh, you know, you go back to the, Carlos having a chance in the second set to be up three love, as you pointed out earlier, and he's 40, 30, and he can't get there. And Novak immediately breaks back. If he had lost that set six, three, obviously his mindset's totally different in the third, but to battle it practically 90 minutes and be in a tiebreaker and have a set point and lose it that way was, was the worst thing that could possibly happen to him. Yeah, uh, as opposed that, to it. That was the same logic I had for the first set as well for for Alcaraz. The fact that he lost six one, and then yeah. he didn't go the distance and lose at seven five, seven six, six four. That's true. That worked in his favor as well. It did. It did exactly because he puts it behind him and says, "I'm just going to start anew." And he's smart enough to know that it doesn't matter whether you lose a set six one or closer; it's still the same value. It's one set. So you're right. Uh, he was able to just say, "I'm going to forget about that one and start over now," which he did. So all, all those things weigh in. A remarkable match in, in, in many ways, you know, and, and great for the game. And, and I, I certainly think that 
I mean, you look back on recent times here, they met the semis of the French. They met in the finals here. Who knows? They probably, they could have played in Australia, but Carlos wasn't there. They could have played at the U.S. Open last year, but Novak wasn't there. But they've dominated the whole recent major scene, if you think about it. Going back to Wimbledon last year, Novak wins the tournament. Carlos wins the Open. Then we go to Australia and Novak. Novak again in Paris, and now Carlos here. So they, they're setting something up. The framework is there. Yeah. And you hope, we all hope, I think, that we can get at least a few more maybe a bunch more in the, uh, you know, at the U.S. Open later this year, through next year and on into the following year. Because by the end of the following year, it could be that Novak is thinking about retiring. You know, it, 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 he's 36 now, so maybe a 38 at, toward the end of that season. But until then, we could get some, some blockbuster matches between the two. Because I'm convinced that Novak, I, you, you remember so well yourself, Bonch, I'm sure that in, in 2021, when Medvedev took the Grand Slam away from him by winning in straight sets at the U.S. Open, they played again indoors in Paris later that year. It was an excellent match. It was yeah. a really high-quality match. And Novak made some adjustments and served and volleyed a lot in the deuce court, used that wide serve to open up the court. And it, he was just a different player than he'd been at the Open. And he beat Daniel in three sets. And I think it was one of his most satisfying wins of the year to avenge the U.S. Open loss. And get back at a major rival, not a personal grievance, just professional pride. And I think it's very similar now where he's going to try to look at this match here and see where he might've gone wrong. And he's going to feel like he's overdue at the U S open where he's won only, only three titles out of nine finals. So I just think he's going to go there determined to win the time, not unable to play it last year, had the incident where he hit the lineswoman, smacked that ball and it hit a lineswoman. He got disqualified in 2020. So, so we're, and then Stan Vavrinka in 2019, Novak gets hurt, has to retire against Stan. He's had so many mishaps since he last won the title in 2018 that he's kind of overdue there. And I think he probably believes that. And then what could be more satisfying? And then from Carlos's side of the net, he wants to defend. He's determined to defend that, that U.S. Open crown and try to validate his status and try and underline what he wants. He'd like to underline his success and win the two biggest tournaments of all and try to beat Novak in both of them. So there would be so much riding on it. But I think Djokovic would have tremendous incentive to strike back in New York. And uh, I, I want to see that rivalry. I, I really want to see it spiral now, don't you? Yeah, no doubt. I want to see them play so much in the next two or three years because, I mean, this is, you know, we're not going to get this for a long time. You know, Max, there's a short two to three year window, basically. And, you know, if they can... You know, I, I'm hoping they can even meet in Cincinnati if they if Novak plays there because I, be. I, I I don't think Novak will play Canada and Cincinnati. I think he will just go for no. Cincinnati and the U.S. Open, whereas Carlos yeah, will try to play set. both. And um, so so we're set up for like a really good good finish. And you know, who knows? Maybe the year number one will come to the line again. Although I suspect that with Alcaraz just playing a lot more, and also just with this win, I think he's probably the favorite to finish the year number one for the, oh, for the second year in a row. Yeah, clear favorite, because what, what could happen is after the U.S. Open briefly, if Djokovic won the Open, I mean, obviously, Carlos is protecting 2,000 points there. Novak is going back, having not played there. It's all a bonus to him. So he could briefly get it back. But, but, but then Carlos was hurt at the end of the year and had the injury in Paris and didn't play in the U.N. Championship. So he's and Novak is not going to chase that. That's not going to interest him. 
Yeah. He would have, it would have been nice for him to win Wimbledon and be in, in the commanding position number one with all those points. But at this point, I don't think he's going to be that concerned with it. I think he, he's just after these majors now. And number one is a bonus. And might have liked the idea of 400 weeks, Fonch, you know, 389, get up to 400. But I don't think it's, it would be that. I mean, he's so many weeks ahead of Roger in, in career, most, most weeks at number one. And so I don't think he's that concerned with it. But Carlos, for him, it's important, I think, to sort of uh, sustain his pace. And that would be something he'd be very proud of to finish at his age. To still be 20 and have two year-end number ones in a row is, would be remarkable. And I think it's, it's almost inevitable unless he gets hurt. Because yeah. as you said, he's going to play more. He'll I mean, get just so look that, at his win percentage this year. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Oh, it's 40, 47 and four on the year. And I mean, three yeah, of those yeah. losses are, you know, yeah. he had physical issues in those matches. And just that one loss to Morosian in Rome, you know, yeah. he was he was totally healthy all the way through, let's say. But like six titles. And I mean, he's going to get a chance for so many more. I mean, he could be in double digits by the end of the year. if Oh, easily. Goes easily. Yeah, he'd probably, he'd probably end the year with about 10. Yeah. No, he's... Listen, he's, his standard has been remarkable. And this is with some real, where I give Carlos a lot of credit is, this is with real disruption. I mean, he couldn't play Australia. He's still hurting then. He gets re-injured in this. It, it, uh, he hurts himself. It lingers. He, he pulls out of Acapulco. Right. He goes to him, wins Indian Wells. He, he gets hurt again a little bit in Miami. Skip Monte Carlo. Keeps going from there. I mean... He did a good job of managing those idle periods and then coming back strong and still playing really well. And I think his only concern has got to be to make sure that he keeps, when he has to pull out of those tournaments as he did Monte Carlo, that he doesn't. Realizing that he's got to be careful. He's got those leg injuries. He's susceptible to some of those injuries. And he, yeah. he, doesn't, want, he doesn't want to have a serious one. Even at Queens, as you know, the trainer was out at Queens. He didn't. You know, it didn't end up being serious, final, yeah. but he even pulled out of an, a little exo and hurling him, the one that Djokovic played, to, oh. as another precautionary move. So I think he and his team are realizing, you know, you have to, they're going to have to be careful about that. But but unless something like that were to happen, he'll he'll end the year number one. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I mean, yeah, I mean, he's defending, what, 3,000 points? I think Djokovic is just under that. But, yeah. But regardless... Uh, yeah, I mean, we're just set for a really, really good finish to the end of the year because I think these two players, I mean, I think you'll, you'll probably have to put Medvedev in there at number three on hard courts. But on every surface now, these are the two best players currently, and they've just separated themselves from the rest of the field, it seems like, because, they I mean, it's it's a clear-cut top two. It is, it is. Now, look, we, we know that there's no doubt... There's no doubt, as we and you and I were talking about this right before we started, no doubt that the Medvedev uh, matchup versus Carlos has become a nightmare because he talked a lot about how Indian Wells was so slow. The courts were so slow. He wasn't really able to hold the serve well. He honestly thought coming into this one that he played his best. He was going to give himself chances to win. I think he based some, of the, on the, some on the serve and some on the surface. Didn't work out that way at all. He was pretty much humiliated again. And, uh, and yet... He can give Novak some tough matches, but I still say Novak at his best beats Daniel at his best. And Novak just has to bear down hard and do some of that serving and volleying and mix things up. And 
he'll still beat him, I think, on the big occasions. I believe that we wouldn't, I don't expect to see a repeat of 2021 US Open, but you're right, Daniel, just be, just by virtue of his hard court expertise and the confidence that he has on hard courts in general and the way he played early in the season and when he ran up with all those tournament wins, including Miami. So, uh, yeah, he'll get back into the mix, but the other two are the best. So potentially maybe we get a final in Cincinnati. Maybe we get one at the open. I would hope that there'd be two or three more meetings before the end of the year is, is not asking for too much. They yeah. might even end up playing in the year end championships in the final, oh, which would so. be fun. And also Novak is going for the seventh title there to, you know, beat yeah. Federer's record there. And yeah. so I think no, you have plenty to be motivated great. about also with the Olympics next year. What's that? Also with the Olympics next year in combination with yeah. trying to stop Alcaraz basically. Yeah. But, but, you know, it's, it's, it, we've been talking about, it. I know I've been talking about it and I think you have too, and a lot of people have since Carlos emerged in such a big way last year, Never mind. The year, year before, obviously, he made his mark at the U.S. Open when he beat Tsitsipas and got to the quarters. But essentially, since he started making his run the spring of 2022 and playing, had that great run from, you know, the semis of, of, of Indian Wells to winning Miami to the great clay court campaign. All we've been hoping for was that this ride would, but they just, they haven't been together enough since then. Yeah. Carlos wasn't quite ready at Wimbledon last year when he lost to Sinner. So that they could have met at Wimbledon last year too, if he had beaten Sinner. So that's all changed now. Now they are the clear one and two, and I, I think frankly that the two of them will enjoy the rivalry. To tell you the truth, I don't think there's going to be any personal animus. It's going to be the challenge of, of finding a way to move past each other, and uh, the hard court matches would be fascinating. They really would. They're both so great on hard courts. Yeah, no doubt about it. I, I have heard some people, some takes from people say that, you know, Alcaraz winning this match might propel some of the other players in his cohort or the, you know, the, let's say the generation above him with their, with their Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Rublev, etc. to believe that they can also beat Novak. But I, I just don't see it that way because I, I feel no, like he you know, said Alcaraz is just so much more complete right now. And yeah, he is. You, you know, you the know only what, thing that I have he, to start monitoring, though, is, is you know, how clutch can Djokovic keep on remaining in these occasions? Because we also saw in Paris-Bercy, for example, where he was on that streak of having won a bunch of those finals in a row. And then he was uncharacteristically a bit un unclutch against Runa in that match. He was. He so, was. He got tied against Runa. He should have won that match. Yeah. No, I think... No, I don't think there's going to be any pattern there. No, but the whole notion that you just mentioned was was something that Carlos talked about in his press conference. And that's a modest, that was a nice yeah. side of it, put it that way, but it doesn't follow to me at all, at all. Because they have their own, they've got their own issues trying to beat Novak. They're not Carlos, as you yeah. say, they're not as complete as Carlos. They don't have the mindset. They don't have the gumption of Carlos. So I don't think it suddenly makes Sitsipas think, oh, well, you know, no. No, now I can turn it around against him. No, I, yeah. I don't buy that at all. It's a totally okay. different situation altogether and I was actually surprised that Carlos said it because deep down I wonder whether he really believes it I think he was trying to be gracious and he wanted to mean it and and it was very well intentioned but I think if you pressed him more he'd realize yeah they're different from him and I mean look look what happened at Wimbledon I mean Novak not, had, had knocked off Rublev had knocked off Sinner are they going to suddenly turn around and watch Alcaraz beat Djokovic and say ah I can do it just like Carlos did it I don't think uh -huh. I just don't don't agree yeah 
Right. And and you can see it just how, just how well, you know, I think there's just that perception, especially when it comes to center, just because the matches against Alcaraz have been so good, so compelling, and that's where they bring out the best in each other. But I feel like Sinner has a lot of work to do against the rest of the field and also shoring up a lot of his own weaknesses. I mean, the forehand still sprays a lot from, uh, you know, he still has a lot of work to do in his transition game. He, the serve can still get better. Like, his, he's just behind uh, Alcaraz in terms of, you know, technical developments and physical developments. He is. He is. But, and I totally agree, he, he can't keep suffering losses to so many different types of players. He took advantage of an excellent draw at Wimbledon all power to him. He gets to his first major semi. Good effort. And I don't think he played badly against Novak. He wasn't rewarded with a set, but he played decently the first two sets and got the third one into a tie break, was up 3-1 and double faulted, and Novak wins it seven points to four. But I think that Sinner, when you want to talk about matchups, I do think he matches up quite well against Carlos. Yeah. And he's one of the few that can kind of, he can unnerve he can make Carlos nervous uh, because he can go toe-to-toe from the baseline with him. He's got so much power. And, and that, that I find interesting. I want to see if it continues, but I have no reason to believe it won't. I mean, granted, the Carlos had the cramping when they played in Miami, but Sinner looked awfully good against him that, that night again, too. So I, that, that's another matchup that I want to see repeated in the coming months. I'd like to see a couple, two or three more at least between them to see how those turn out. Because I do believe that, that that's where Sinner seems to be at his best is against Carlos. Had the match point at the U.S. Open, you know, it, that could have changed history considerably if he'd converted that. But he's he's consistently played Carlos tough. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, you know, and as you were saying that, I was just thinking back to the Medvedev Alcaraz match, and I was just thinking, you know, because it was just so one sided, and because you know of that return position that Daniil has, and obviously, you know, we we saw him try and move up and. You know, in the first game of the or at five three in the first set, he moved up and he just missed all those returns. But when we were watching him when he was playing Eubanks, you know, he made that adjustment in the fourth set tiebreak and then and then in the fifth set as well. And I was just thinking to myself, imagine if Eubanks had gotten through that match somehow. I think that could have been a that could have been a more interesting and perhaps a tougher matchup for Alcaraz in the semifinals. No doubt about it. Absolutely, no doubt about it. I mean. Hard for me to see Eubanks winning three sets. Yeah. But not, not hard for me to see him winning one and maybe making it a relatively close four-set battle. And then the best-case scenario, even pushing it to five. I just don't think he would have won, but I agree that he would have made him uncomfortable. He makes everybody uncomfortable. He had those fine wins over Nori and Tsitsipas that got him to yeah. the quarters and, and had Medvedev on the brink all the way to two sets to one up to three all in the four-set breaker. So he was so close. I agree. I thought about that, too, how much fun it would have been to watch it. Also, the fact that Eubanks is such a gentleman and such a uh, exhilarating player to watch, respectful, respectful of his opponents, but coming after them full force with, with all that aggression and not, and not allowing them to rally, by the way. You know, obviously keeping the points as short as he can and going for winners. And he's got a, his forehand is terrific. I'm not wild about his backhand, but I really love the forehand. And, it's improving his volleying, and the serve can be devastatingly potent. So we missed out on something there in an odd way. I was hoping, I must say, I was hoping that Daniel was going to make it more competitive this time. Yeah. When he made the comments at the press conference, level, maybe he's right. And I thought to myself, well, if he has a really good serving day, and keep this thing close. And for a while, up until the end of the first set, he was doing that. But as soon as he lost his serve near the end of the set, 
then I'm thinking it just looked to me like very quickly he gave up. He, he's he's one of the the most irregular competitors I've seen. There's stages where you feel like he puts up the brick wall, and he has and he and he calms himself down, and he makes you beat him, and he's actually quite mentally tough. But then there's other stages where I think mentally he caves, and I honestly thought this was one of those times. Did you see? Did you feel that way about his performance with Carlos? I did as well because I thought he could have served better. And I also thought there were times where his second serve was getting picked apart very, very easily. But Alcaraz was. was basically playing a return plus one on his serve. And that, yeah. was, that, that was shocking because he was just stepping in, you know, on most of the break points, hitting his backhand down the line and then coming to the net. And then he was really just toying with Daniel. And, you know, it was quite jarring to see the number three player in the world get pushed around like that. And now in fairness, he did make the third set a lot more competitive. But I think that had a lot more to do with Carlos actually losing his focus and, and you know, allowing Medvedev to get back in the match. 75% Carlos losing his focus, I agree. Yeah. And Medvedev was, uh, he was encouraged, kind of mildly encouraged by that. I think he thought maybe he could keep it on serve, maybe get it into a tie break, whatever. But now it, it was Carlos getting distracted. And so yeah. it's an enigma. When you look at the early season, when you look at Medvedev having that string of tournament wins, and what's he got? Five titles now. Yeah. Medvedev in the majors has, you know, and he managed to get to the semis here, but he's been a disappointment in every major. And oddly, I'd say a disappointment here that it would end that way. Yes. That it would end with, with not a better performance where he's at least pushing Carlos and taking a set and making it close and giving himself some reason to believe that he could strike back against Carlos on the hard course. Now I think if they play at Cincinnati or the Open, we're, I'll be shocked if it's not straight sets for Carlos. Yeah, no doubt about that. I mean, I was also impressed, uh, you know, how well Tsitsipas actually managed to do in, in the grass, in, in this tournament particularly, just because, you know, his form coming in was not that good, but I was impressed by the win against Murray from two sets to yes. one down. And yes. I felt like he had plenty of chances to win that match against Eubanks as well, but it, it didn't happen for him. But I feel like this was this was actually a pretty good tournament now that I think about it. It was, yeah. And, and, and let's face it, to cut him a bit of slack, as you know, the rain in the first week, especially, was was oh, wreaking yeah. havoc with the schedule. So he, he, uh, Sitsipas was getting the 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 bad end of the deal there and having to come back day after day. You mentioned the Murray match played over two days, and you know this kept happening to him. And he finally straightened himself out. I did think he was going to beat Eubanks, and it would yeah, have been too. fascinating actually to see him play Medvedev on grass. So he conceivably could have been in the semis no way would he beat Carlos although I think he would have given a better account of himself than than Daniel did yeah but I agree with you in a strange way it, it, you know fourth round was not so terrible yeah exactly um I feel that I feel like that as well I mean what are your thoughts on Runa in general in this on Hoger uh you know in this in this tournament obviously he had that you know they had that tight Battle. I'd been looking so forward to seeing Aruna and Alcaraz match because they hadn't played each other since Bercy, you know, of last year. And you know, yeah. I was expecting more out of that match. I was really thinking oh. that that you know that could be a five setter or it could be a you know tight four setter. And you know, once Runa lost that lost that first set, actually, strangely enough, he also served and volleyed on on that set point. And you know, Alcaraz yeah. came up with a nice pass there. But uh, but yeah. I, you know, I just I just feel like he ran out of gas. You know, in the third set especially, and we just didn't get that competitive match. I was saying exactly what you did to several of my colleagues in the press room. I, I felt like an idiot after the match, but I said, look, Runa is not going to win this match, but this is going to be four. This may well, I, I actually think it will go five. 
And actually, most of my colleagues agreed with me. Hmm. And you're right. That was one of the letdown matches of the tournament. You know, once the tiebreak got away and his attitude was not terribly, it was not, it was not the defiant Runa that we've seen, the, the same one that beat Novak indoors in Paris last year, that we've seen him when he really puts his mind to something and has that attitude. He was yeah. passive by his standards. And uh, I, 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 I don't think going forward, we're going to see many, Matt. I think the next couple of times, though, it'll be revealing when he plays Carlos on the hard courts, hopefully that later this year. How does he do if they meet two or three more times? I, I, I expect much more out of him than that. That was, he claimed he wasn't feeling well. He was a little vague about what was wrong. Uh, and and I, I don't like it when guys lose in straight sets like that and try to make excuses. But there may, maybe there was some truth to what he was saying. But that to me was disappointing as we, we already discussed Medvedev, but the Runa match was in some ways even more disappointing to me. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, I feel like, uh, you know, in, in some ways, you know, he he's more willing to counterpunch and defend than Alcaraz is. And, you know, he's got that versatile defense, especially on the forehand. But I just don't feel like his forehand right now is an offensive enough weapon. Uh, in combination. Yeah, yeah. In combination with his serve. Like, I, you know, for example, when he was playing indoors and without the other outside elements, I felt like his forehand and his serve was doing were doing so much damage. And he was basically playing first strike tennis along with defending. But now I, you know, you know, it's been a good year for him. But uh, and and he's gotten to these quarterfinals, and th that's a good effort. But you know, he's got to be winning some of those earlier rounds more comfortably than he is, for sure. He does, he does, and you know, then there's just been certain, maybe certain moments and certain matches that have cost him. I think he thought he was going to win Rome. Uh, he was surprised yeah. about the match with Daniel there. He was just a little disappointed with that. You're right. It's been a good year. Not quite as good as it might have been, but there's a lot, a lot left. Yeah. So we'll see where he goes from here. There's always that concern about his conditioning, but I, 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 I was really expecting a sparkler when he played Carlos, and frankly, I think Carlos was too. I honestly think Carlos went into that match expecting to be pushed, to be pushed a lot. It was very, and why? I mean, my God, Alcaraz served beautifully, but to lose. At one stage, like eight or nine service games, a point a game. I mean, he was just breezing through his service games again. That also surprised me because I think Bruno returns well. And I, I yeah. didn't get that. I just didn't get it. But that, that was the match that just didn't come off the way we hoped it would. No doubt about it. Yeah, I want to switch over a little bit to the women's side. Uh, and, you know, talk about, you know, uh, you know, I want to give Von Drusova, obviously, her due. You know, she, she her run to the final was not was not bad at all. You know, she beat... She beat Pagula. She had that, you know, excellent comeback when there had, you know, Pagula had a break point for 5-1. Yeah, and Pagula quarters, won so. the second set 6-2. So she was on yes. like 10 out of 13 games. She was on a tear. She was about to close the match out with a flourish. And yeah. boy, I bet, I wonder how she felt after the final when she looked at that, what might have been for her. Yeah, you know, and I and I thought the story was was going to be Ons Jabor and Alina Svitolina because they'd each knocked off four major champions on the way, particularly Jabor. I mean, to knock off Andrescu from 1-3 down in the third and then play that excellent match against Kovitova. Granted, Kovitova didn't really show up, but the matches particularly against Rybakina and Sabalenka from a set down and to get herself back in this position and do all of that work and, you know, be up in both those both both those sets and then just totally lose her way in the final like that. It was, it was tough to watch. That was one of the hardest matches... For me to watch because I wanted her to win. I was rooting for it. You speak, you speak for all of us. It was well stated, Bonch. I mean, what I didn't get was 
okay, she's two love up in the first set. Chances for three love, doesn't take advantage of it. It's two all. And then she goes to four two. I thought at that stage, okay, she's going to be fine. 16 out of 18 points from there are gone. Yeah. And then to come from a breakdown at the start of the second, it was one love, 40 love. And the next thing you know, she's up 3-1 yeah. with a second chance and wins one more game. Very disappointing effort. When you consider that it was her third major final, her second Wimbledon final in a row, and seemingly her best chance of the three to take a major title. And obviously she carries immense burdens just because by virtue of, you know, Tunisia and what yeah. she represents, what she means in that part of the world. I have a lot of sympathy, but it just surprised me. I thought, you know, she joked a little bit after the semi because she knew that Van Drusseva had beaten her the last couple of times. And, but I, I really would have thought she would have found a way on the center court in those surroundings at this time to, to get it done. And now I worry a bit because yeah. you alluded to all those other wins. I mean, look, Sabalenka was completely outplaying her up until yes. I thought not. I mean, completely. She was outplaying her in fairness. Tight first set, 4-2 in the second. And and Sabalenka had not lost her serve up to that stage. And Anz found a way out of that match. To her credit, it was a gutsy effort to win that match. But obviously, she, these girls, it's it's she's not going to beat most of these other top players easily. It has to be going her way. So I don't think we're going to see tons more Grand Slam finals for Jabor. And I just hope that the next one or two that come along it would just be very sad for someone of her stature and popularity and her versatility as a player to not win a major. I, I really hope she can get it done. But I, I, unlike last year, I'd be surprised much this time if she was back in the U.S. Open final as she was a year ago against Wiancek. I, I don't see it right now. Do you? No, I, I really have my doubts as well because she's she's almost 29. And, you know, the frankly, the only major where I really... Think it could seriously happen was here because you know I as well as she played at the French Open I just don't really see it for her there. Shriantek is so no, dominant and, and no. um you know and grass just suits her game perfectly and I feel like at the U.S. at the U.S. Open she she will need some help you know from the from the draws and in in the hard court events because I just think she's a better natural surface player and also the, the power players like you mentioned you know they're maybe more likely to hit her off the court there so I. Yeah, it, it's really tough. Like three major finals lost, almost twenty nine. But you know, this was this was her chance. So I, yeah, listen, I don't. She, I, I I think she does a lot of things really well. But I mean, again, for somebody of her attacking nature, she loses serve too much. Yeah, and the ground game is to me is a bit limited. She can really volley. She's got she's got wonderful finesse, great touch. But I don't know. She's got her work cut out for her with all, with all those players. It's just not going to get any easier. And this could have just made her life so much easier if she would have collected the title now and been the Wimbledon champion. And it would have just made playing the rest of the year that much more comfortable and fun for her. Now, tough road ahead. Yeah. And, and you know, she played all those power players. And maybe that was the, you know, to, to go from that to playing Von Drusseva, who's very tricky in her own way. But she she makes you generate all the pace. She makes you you know get the ball by her because she has such good racket skills and she's her prowess defensively is very you know it's she's got defensive or she's got a great defensive game along with some great versatility with drop shots of her own and it was just yeah. uh, it was a, it's a tricky matchup for her. 
But I don't think it, you're right. I think she can defend, but it's not the way she really wants to be playing. It's it's very tricky package that she's got there. Yeah. And in terms of making, you know, fully exploiting her her gifts. And uh, it, uh, to get back to your original comment, I couldn't have felt more like you did. It was just like sitting on a pins and needles and 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 what when it ended, it was very deflating. And that's taking nothing away from Vandrusova. But I have to say, I mean, she's left-handed. She she varies the pace. She varies the trajectory of her stroke. She's she earned the title. Having said that, I'd be very surprised if she won another major. I think mm -hmm. she struck when the opportunity was there. I think she can go to the quarters and semis of some of these majors, but I, I don't see her. I think there's too much talent around her too. So all power to her for uh, exploiting this opening and, and taking it when it was there. But I, I, don't, I don't see it re being repeated. Yeah, I just hope, you know, we see we see what she can fully do when she's healthy because she also had those wrist, uh, you know, yeah. surgeries and she's obviously been in the finals of the French before Olympic silver medalist, but, you know, hopefully we don't see a pocket of time where, you know, she just goes missing and, you know, we see more, more stability, let's say kind of, kind of like Mohova in the, in the Roland Garros, uh, getting to the Roland Garros final. Right. Game. Right. Yeah. There's, there's just a lot of depth in, in checks in Czech tennis, of course. No, there is. There is. Absolutely. And listen, Vandrusova, she's very appealing. I love the way she had, she, she wore her success well and the crowd enjoyed her. And she's, uh, she's got some nice variety in her game and, and, and great lefty skills. But this was, uh, this, this was something that I unexpected and she pulled it off. And, but I, I fear that she's going to go in, she's going to be a prime member of the one, one slam club. Yeah, I have very much agree with you there. Um, but yeah, I mean, if is there's is there any other story from the women's side from you know Shviantek playing against Svitolina? Obviously, those matches for Svitolina against Azarenka and you know, Svitolina was, was to me she was the she was so much fun to watch in this tournament, and for the all the obvious reasons and everything she's been through and the quest she was on, and then and then of course she came up really she has she had even more of a problem with von Drusova than than Ans did I, I her game just does not match up well there but it was such a fine run until then the the Switzerlandna match against Azarenka was one of the best matches of the tournament great, great yeah. win for her there in that final set super tie break so I uh, I love the run that she had and and she can't be that disappointed with the semifinals and good for her she certainly has made a a, uh, a an impressive comeback and i hope that she'll ride i hope she will take advantage of of what she did at wimbledon to get to the penultimate round and now start making a habit out of it again and maybe make a return to the top 10 i would i wouldn't be surprised yeah i wouldn't i would certainly welcome that and love to see it and obviously such a quick rise you know to come back from from april and be already in, in the mix like this and back to yeah. the majors already won another title so right yeah it's uh, it's impressive stuff, but uh, but I also she worked, she, yeah. she was the she was sort of the, I'm trying to think of the right. She was the most beguiling player in that field. The crowds were loving her, and they appreciated her attitude, and they knew what she'd been through, and the other players respect her. I think even Azarenka's tense a match it was she she took the fact that there was no handshake in the right light, un understood yeah. it, and dealt with it. So 
Svitolina was was a major major player in quotes at this tournament. No doubt about it. And you know, it was a step forward also for Sviantec to get to the quarters and get a little bit better on grass. I felt like she could have closed that first set out against Svitolina. You know, she had five, chances three, in that one. Five three Vance. That to me was the yeah. key to that match. I think she lost it in the first set. She managed to squeeze out the second, but if she was playing from a setup, it's probably a different match. But I still have great admiration for her, and I feel like, okay, her time will come. She'll she'll improve on the grass, but I, I think she's coming back to the U.S. Open. She'll be back there in a good frame of mind with a, a reasonably good chance to defend the title. Yeah, for sure. Um, but just, you know, how was your experience as well, just being on the grounds and being there in the second, you know, you know, uh, being there, you know, for for these matches, like what what were some highlights personally for you? You know, I I can't single anything out. We've talked about a lot of them there. We obviously the final, the men's final was the the uh, the highlight of all. But uh, no, it's just always such a pleasure to be there. I I just I'm struck again as I watched. I felt it during the Djokovic Hercash match. I felt it watching Carlos in there, but there's something about a center court crowd that surpasses anything I see or feel any, at, at the other majors. They can't quite measure up to it. Something about the sounds in that center court. And it's particularly true when the roof is closed, but it's not, it, it's not a great difference from when it's open either. Just, that is just the premier theater in tennis. So I always just get so much, I mean, I, wa- I go over to court one. I was over there watching Eubanks and Medvedev, and that's a, that's a very appealing court too as well. But I just think that center court is, it's the most appealing place in tennis. And it, I never tire of being there. And I, I love, the, I love the, the way the, granted, the fans can sometimes be a little unfair. They're rough on Djokovic, but overall they're very animated and they're very educated. So I felt like, once more, I felt lucky to be on those grounds because it goes back to 1965 for me with my first visit there as I was 12 and about to turn 13 and my father took me out there. So it's a long, happy history that I have at that place. And this year didn't disappoint me one bit. Steve, that's a fantastic way to close out this show um, as you describe the Holy Grail of tennis being Wimbledon Center Court uh, and... Uh... Yeah, uh, this was this, this was such a pleasure, uh, as as all the major recaps are, and I can't wait to do another one of these after the U.S. Open. Yeah, I look forward to it, Vanch. You know, we think a lot alike, and I I always enjoy bouncing these uh, these observations off of you. This, and largely we agree. And yeah, the open the open will be a really. I think we're going to have even more to talk about after the open. I just sense we're in in for something very special there, and I'm getting my hopes up already, very high for that Djokovic Alcaraz collision. Likewise, Steve. Uh, yeah, thanks a lot for the compliment. And uh, yeah, have a good one. Thank you, Vaj. Hmm. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.